Hello, Pastor Patrick Hines here, and I wanted to do another installment on the book of Romans, and I'm in my car uh, today, this time, um, because it's just too hot to do it in my office. Um, the AC broke, and it's just, it's like 80-something degrees in there. So I actually started to do it, but then I, I did a little uh, little exercise, so sorry if I'm a little blotchy right now. But anyway, I'm at the, that cemetery uh, over here. Uh, it's a beautiful place. It's nice and quiet. Um, but anyway, Romans chapter one, beginning at verse eight, we're just picking up right where we left off. Let's see if I can put this right here. here. Will that work? Let me turn my steering wheel just a little bit here. Okay. Romans chapter one, verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Okay, so there, um, verse 8, 9, and 10 of Romans chapter 1, you have kind of some housekeeping things. Now, Paul um, had heard about the church in Rome. Apparently, it was a, a wonderful church, and their faith was being spoken of uh, throughout the world. They had a good reputation. And uh, Paul says that he really wanted to come see them, and he lets them know that he prays for them a lot. What's amazing is that in the very last chapter of Romans, in Romans 16, um, he greets a whole bunch of people by name. Uh, so I guess somehow he knew uh, a lot of the people there at the church in Rome, but he had never really been able to visit them and he really wanted to go there. And he says that in verse 11, I, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, what does it mean to be established? You know, that was one thing that Paul, uh, he brings that up in 1 Thessalonians. He wants them to be established. And that comes up in other letters that he wrote. To be established, what he's really talking about there, uh, means to be firmly fixed in place in your doctrine and what you believe. <clears throat> being certain of the truth of the gospel and really being immovable from it. Uh, not being someone that's easily swayed, easily uh, pushed pushed away from the truth by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike or, or fads or whatever. He says, I, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. I want to, you to be established through the imparting of some spiritual gift. That is what he means by the spiritual gift, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So he wanted to be an encouragement to them in their faith, the mutual faith both of you and me. And I think that the word faith there is, is referring to both things, our, our faith in Christ, the trust that we have in Jesus Christ, but also the faith, the doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, uh, Jude verse four says that, uh, I, or verse three, contend for <clears throat> the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith is the Christian faith, the Christian system of doctrine. And there's few things more encouraging than getting together with Christians, with Bibles, uh, or with good books, and reviewing, talking about, reading about, and discussing the things of God, and encouraging one another with the things of God, sharing insight that we have into Scripture, and edifying and encouraging one another uh, with the mutual faith, both of you and me, it says there in verse 12. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, 
I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And that's a very interesting thing. We usually think, well, we preach the gospel. We want to preach the gospel to the, to the non-Christians, to the unbelievers, because they need to hear it so they can repent and believe it and be saved. But the fact is, as we all know, Christians need to have the gospel preached to them too, because we struggle with doubt and we struggle with unbelief and we struggle with our sins and we need assurance that God still loves us, that God's grace is greater even than our Christian failures in life. And so he says, I am ready to come and preach the gospel to you in Rome also. He's excited. Hopefully he's hoping that at some point he can get there to preach the gospel to the church in Rome because the church needs to hear the gospel too. I always think of that great quotation from John Calvin's successor there in Geneva, Theodore Beza, who said that the word of God is divided into two basic parts, the law and the gospel. And he says, the law is in us by nature. The gospel is not at all in us by nature. And that's why it has to be preached constantly. But see, we're all born with the law already written in our hearts and mankind, because he's blind in his sin, he doesn't see how serious sin is. He doesn't think he needs the righteousness of Christ or the cross of Christ for his forgiveness or anything like that. But that's already in us by nature. The law is already there by nature. That's, but the gospel is entirely supernaturally revealed from heaven and it's not in us by nature. Okay. The gospel has to, to come to us from heaven and has to be revealed to us savingly by God directly to our hearts. That's what John six forty four and 45 are talking about. Jesus says, no one is able to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day as it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. God has to supernaturally teach us the gospel, and he does that through us hearing it in the scriptures and the word of God. And Christians need to regularly, regularly be hearing the gospel. There's a famous uh, story, an anecdote from the early church, John Chrysostom uh, would have someone else read the book of Romans to him out loud once a, a week. And he would just sit and listen to it. And I just think that's great. You know, he didn't obviously have a tape player or an iPhone. I used to listen to the Bible on audio cassette um, in my car. I had tapes. Uh, I just like, I forget how many tapes it was. It was like 30 or 40 tapes. Uh, And it was really cool when I was introduced to the wonderful world of digital MP3 players and things like that. That kind of shows you how old I am. But anyway, so Paul wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel to the people who were in Rome, the Christian people in the church at Rome. Verse 16 and 17, here we get really to the theme of the book of Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And there's going to be a temptation. It's going to be a temptation on the part of ministers and uh, professing Christians to be ashamed of the gospel, especially as we live in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to it and more and more hostile to biblical righteousness. Uh, the temptation is going to be uh, to be ashamed. Um, and we can't do that. We have to, to be bold in our stance for the gospel and identifying ourselves as Bible-believing Christians. Do not be ashamed of Christ and don't be ashamed of the gospel. He says, for it is the power of God. The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is justification by faith alone. God justifies believing sinners by their belief in Jesus alone. Meaning if a person truly believes in Jesus, what that means is they do not believe in or trust in their works anymore. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 4, 4 and 5, I'm anxious to get further here in Romans, but he says, to the one who works, his wages are credited not as grace, but as debt, as what is owed. But to the one not working, but believing, his faith is credited as righteousness. So when a person says, I believe the gospel, I believe in Jesus Christ, what they're really saying when they say that, if they, if they mean it biblically, what they mean is, I am relying upon what Christ has done to save me from my sins and to bring me into heaven and nothing else. If a person is trusting in their works, their faithfulness, their obedience or whatever, then they really don't believe in Jesus Christ. They really do not believe in him. Verse 17, this is the verse that really was... <laughs> pardon me, was life-altering for Martin Luther. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and here he cites from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. So in the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of, in this gospel that he wants to preach to the people who are in Rome there, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that? The righteousness of God is the very righteousness that was produced and achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. In the gospel, that righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. It is revealed in, in the words of God in scripture and the proclamation of the good news. We get into heaven solely, completely, and only on the legal grounds of the righteousness of God, which is the very righteousness that was achieved by Christ alone, our Savior, our covenant surety, and our Redeemer, the last Adam. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, later on in, in Romans, uh, Paul is going to say there uh, in Romans chapter 5, um, that great passage. Romans five seventeen was one of those verses that just recently, it just jumped off the page as just so encouraging and glorious. He says, for if by the one man's offense, by Adam's sin, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's what that's talking about. That, that gift of righteousness, that's the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. That's the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says again and again in Romans 5, 12 through 19, that it's by Christ's obedience that we are declared righteous, that we are made righteous, that we are justified before God. And so the gospel message that Paul is going to unpack here, as he explains, he's going to go through the whole system of doctrine. It's beginning with sin and the wrath of God and the judgment. Why is God angry at humanity? He goes through that in great detail in Romans 1, 18 and following. But the beating heart of the book of Romans and the beating heart of the Christian faith is that we are made right with God. The sinner can be right with God, can get into heaven and be justified before God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the very righteousness of God, which is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by the Lord Jesus. And it's given as a gift. And so I ask, do you have, do you personally have what Paul describes in Romans five seventeen? Do you have that gift of righteousness? It's only given to those who do not work for it, but simply believe on and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not trust in their works. They trust only in Jesus Christ. If you trust only in him for your salvation, you have that gift of righteousness and you will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Okay, so that brings us uh, to verse 17 and we'll pick up with verse 18 next time. Thanks for watching or for listening.